An invisible nuclear threat hidden in the depths. A report says Beijing is developing a new generation of submarines. And if combined with missiles, the fleet could strike the continental U.S. Construction underway at nuclear test sites. Satellite images show China, Russia and the U.S. expanding their facilities and digging new tunnels. Are weapons tests incoming for the superpowers? Russia and China both saying no to a U.S.-drafted resolution at the U.N. Security Council. How does the refusal impact Hamas terrorists as war rages in Israel? A flurry of handshakes between American and Chinese officials is a thaw in U.S.-China relations within reach. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A growing nuclear threat from China. A new report saying Beijing is developing a new generation of nuclear-powered submarines, expected to be ready in 10 years. The biggest concern that the new fleet will make it much harder for the U.S. to detect a nuclear strike launched from China's shores. The new submarines are called Type 096. The report comes from the U.S. Naval War College, the Staff College of the U.S. Navy. It is likely that the Type 096 will, will not only have uh, a better version of the JL-3, but will be quieter and thus even more capable of uh, conducting successful patrols close to China in protected waters where they can launch these missiles that are still capable of striking the United States. JL-3 is China's latest ballistic missiles that can be launched from a submarine. It has a range of over 6,000 miles, capable of reaching the continental U.S. The commander of U.S. Strategic Command said China is equipping its submarines with these missiles. Each can carry multiple nuclear warheads. What else is different about the new subs? They're quieter, so it's harder to detect them. This is a, a very significant advance for China's ballistic missile submarine technology, which previously had uh, sh much shorter range submarine launch ballistic missiles and thus had to travel out into the Pacific Ocean where they were much more vulnerable to American submarines. That's not the case anymore. On the note of deterrence, Fisher said the U.S. must invest in its own submarine fleet. And that's what the United States must do. We must spend more to build a larger submarine fleet uh, as a component of our ability to convince China that today or tomorrow or next week is not the time to start a war against the United States. Experts say countries including Japan and India are putting in more effort to track Chinese subs. That's by sending more submarine hunting aircraft to patrol in Southeast Asia and around the Indian Ocean. New activities at nuclear test sites in the U.S., Russia, and China. What do satellite images reveal about the three nuclear powers? And what are they up to? Let's dive in. Three of the world's nuclear powers aren't sitting idle. Satellite images show China, Russia, and the U.S. have been expanding their nuclear test sites in recent years. This comes amid growing tension between these countries. What do these images reveal? Here's the take from Jeffrey Lewis, a professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. He told CNN that there are a lot of hints that suggest Russia, China, and the United States might resume nuclear testing. Here's a snapshot of a Russian nuclear test site located in the Arctic Ocean archipelago. Satellite images show different buildings under construction. Lewis said Russia had been digging new tunnels, which could be a sign that they're prepared to resume testing. 
This is a satellite image of the nuclear test site in Nevada. It shows an underground facility has been expanded from 2018 to 2023. Lewis added the U.S. has a policy of always being prepared to do a nuclear test on six months' notice. Now moving over to China, here's a nuclear test site in China's western Xinjiang. It shows new constructions built in recent years. Another satellite image shows new underground tunnels. In addition to nuclear test sites, China has been expanding its nuclear forces. Beijing has about 500 nuclear warheads as of May. Its nuclear stockpile has been growing faster than the Pentagon's projections. China's top diplomat kicking off a three-day visit to the U.S. It's another milestone in that effort to keep the lines of communication open. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is the highest-ranking Chinese official to visit Washington in the last five years. He's reportedly set to meet with President Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan this week. It is the latest move by Washington and Beijing to keep high-level talks open amid growing tensions. Discussions will center on the Israel-Hamas war, the conflict in Ukraine, and the recent boat clash between China and the Philippines in the South China Sea. China has criticized Israel for its response and called for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Wang's visit is seen as paving the way for a meeting between Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping next month in San Francisco. China's former premier Li Keqiang has died. Li was China's premier from 2013 to 2023. He was shuffled out recently by Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping. Chinese media report that Keqiang died of a heart attack. What would happen if a ceasefire began in Gaza? Russia and China vetoed a U.S. effort on Wednesday for the U.N. to act on the Israel-Hamas war. The U.S. draft would have reaffirmed Israel's right to defend itself and approved humanitarian pauses to deliver aid to Gaza. Here's more. China defended its veto Thursday of a drafted resolution at the U.N. Security Council. The U.S. proposed the draft. It defends Israel's right to self-defense, calls for a humanitarian pause to the war in Gaza, and demands that Iran stop exporting arms to militant groups. Ten countries said yes, three said no, and two chose not vote in the 15-member council on Wednesday. The resolution was not adopted because both Russia and China cast vetoes. The United Arab Emirates also voted against it. An additional vote was cast on a Russian-drafted resolution calling for a ceasefire. China and the United Arab Emirates were the only country to vote in favor of the draft. The U.S. and Britain opposed the measure. The White House warned against a ceasefire earlier this week. We're going to continue to make sure Israel has the tools and the capabilities that they need to defend themselves. And as I think you've heard us say, uh, a ceasefire right now really only benefits Hamas. Kirby also expressed U.S. concerns about future attacks on American troops. At least nine vetoes are needed for a resolution. Adopting it would also require no vetoes from the U.S., France, Britain, Russia, or China. Israel's ambassador to the UN called those rejected the US draft oblivious to Israel's suffering, saying, quote, How would Beijing respond if genocidal jihadists beheaded and murdered your babies? China has never condemned Hamas's terrorist attack. The country also put pressure on Israel to stop bombing Gaza after Tel Aviv vowed to eradicate the terrorist group. President Joe Biden serving a bold criticism of Beijing's global infrastructure initiative during a White House news conference. He says the Belt and Road has left countries that signed on to it, quote, dead in the news. 
He noted that the U.S. is working with its group of seven partner nations to provide an alternative to doing business for China, especially for developing countries that are looking to grow their infrastructure. China hosted a summit marking the project's 10th anniversary earlier this month, where Beijing pledged to invest another $100 billion. But the far-reaching investment project has taken heavy criticism in the West, with experts calling it a debt trap for developing nations. Turning to Asia for some quick updates, President Joe Biden issued a stern warning to China that if Beijing attacks Philippine vessels in the South China Sea, U.S. forces would have no choice but to intervene. I want to be clear. I want to be very clear. The United States defense commitment to the Philippines is ironclad. The United States defense agreement with the Philippines is ironclad. Taiwan's defense ministry says it detected 15 Chinese Air Force planes entering Taiwan's air defense zone Thursday morning. The incursion included H-6 bombers, J-16 fighter jets and drones. The aircraft accompanied Chinese warships as they performed combat readiness patrols and drills. The defense ministry says the island's military is monitoring the situation. A joint maritime drill is underway between the South Korean and U.S. navies. The four-day drill is part of an annual field training exercise involving 30 warships, combat helicopters and fighter jets. Earlier, the two countries held a joint aerial exercise with Japan near the Korean Peninsula. That was to expand the country's response capabilities against North Korea's nuclear threats. And Denmark is looking to de-risk from China and boost ties with countries like Japan instead. The Danish prime minister spoke with newspaper Nikkei Asia in Tokyo about the plan. She said Denmark had been, quote, too naive when it comes to being too dependent on China. Denmark has stopped accepting state scholarships for Chinese students due to fear of technology leaks to Beijing. A deeper look into religious persecution around the world. Why do communist countries push back on religious practices? NTD's Arian Pazdar has more on what lawmakers and witnesses have to say. Amazingly, despite the fall of the Soviet Union and the West's victory at the end of the Cold War, there are a number of communist countries left around the world. The president of the Religious Freedom Institute testifying before House lawmakers on Wednesday. He says communist regimes usually don't tolerate religious practices. That's because communists require allegiance to the state from its citizens, not allegiance to God. Religious people are often seen as lacking allegiance because Christians, Muslims, Jews, and other religious people have a higher authority that they uh, worship and that they hold to. So this is why China cracks down on Uyghurs, Falun Gong. He then went on to say that Chinese leader Xi Jinping especially has been restricting religious and spiritual movements recently, giving the example that no CCP official can be a publicly observant person of faith. An American performing arts company blocked from performing on the Korean Peninsula. Surprising as it may seem, this time the restriction comes not from North Korea, but rather from South Korea. Why? Let's dive in. The Chinese regime has been trying to stop the group from performing there for years now, even threatening economic and political repercussions. The performance shows traditional Chinese culture before communism, much to the dislike of the CCP, which wants to destroy traditional culture. The classical arts group Shen Yun Performing Arts, based in New York, tours more than 20 countries every year. This year, local organizers say Seoul's two major theaters are rejecting the group's bid 
to perform as a result of pressure from the CCP. This could now come as a test to Korea's president, Yoon Suk-yeol. He was elected in 2022, promising to bring South Korea closer to the United States and take a stronger stance against China. Earlier this year, U.S. Congresswoman Michelle Steele wrote a letter to the Korean president urging the Korean government to prevent the CCP from suppressing Shenyun. Coming up, a closer look at China's footprint in the Middle East. How is Beijing using its Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative to boost its influence there? And now the Taliban is looking to sign on. We take a closer look at what's driving the move and the pros and cons for China in just a minute. More after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A new partnership in the Middle East. The Taliban is moving one step closer to teaming up with the Chinese Communist Party. It wants to make Afghanistan the latest add-on for China's Belt and Road Initiative. But would the agreement prove a win-win for both parties? We sat down with Andrew Thornbrook, national security correspondent at the Epic Times, for his take. Andrew Thornbrook, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Tiff. It's great to be here. President Biden took aim at the Chinese Communist Party, in particular the infrastructure project known as the Belt and Road, saying that China has left its partners dead in the noose. It seems one country that didn't get the message is the Taliban. They're actually trying to join the Belt and Road. So why is the Taliban trying to join? What's in it for them? For the Taliban, there's virtually no income right now. The, we, we've seen the Taliban in in the wake of America's withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, be completely unable uh, to generate the cash or the expertise needed to build real meaningful infrastructure in Afghanistan to provide for their people. Um, and what they do have to offer potentially is a $50 billion copper mine. Uh, which is beneath the historic site, which has its own implications, but uh, which they have sold largely to Chinese companies. And is now the Chinese companies and the Taliban trying to work out a deal as to how the Taliban can be brought into this broader Chinese economic framework in exchange for sort of granting access to this unprecedented amount of uh, metal wealth. There's this whole push for electric vehicles, and copper is one of the key minerals. Now a lot of countries and people are saying all of these minerals are going to be the new oil for this new form of energy. But in terms of China, what's in it for them, or what issues might they encounter in dealing with the Taliban? In it for China is, of course, the metals, which will help uh, insulate their own supply chains from the United States and uh, can help further sanction-proof their economy so we have less leverage over them. Uh, in terms of possible hurdles, is foremost among their hurdles is the fact that the Taliban have not been recognized by any nation on earth as the de jure government of Afghanistan. Uh, even China does not recognize the Taliban as the de jure government of Afghanistan. They've gone further than most other countries, uh, than any other countries, actually. They've sent an ambassador to the Taliban, but they have not gone so far as to say, yes, the Taliban are the legitimate government. So that alone poses enormous problems for the Chinese Communist Party, uh, to say nothing of the international fallout that would inevitably happen if China is the first to acknowledge the Taliban and start stealing economic deals with them. 
To your point, China did officially invite the Taliban to their Belt and Road Forum inside Beijing, where Putin was also present, despite his international warrant out for his arrest. How do you view China's role in backing these types of governments? There's also rumblings of China's involvement with Iran and what we're seeing in Israel. What have you seen about that? This is kind of plan B for the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, we're seeing them double down and focusing particularly in Southeast Asia and the Middle East in their effort to strip away United States influence and to offer themselves specifically as an alternative, as a mediator for international conflicts, as a go-to for uh, loans and these sorts of things. Uh, and so we've seen this particularly happen as their own Belt and Rail Road Initiative has suffered setback after setback. And now China doesn't actually have the money to be investing what it said it was going to be investing. Europe has largely shunned the project at this point. Italy, the one European country that actually had formally joined, is trying to get out. Uh, and this is seen very well in the attendance of this recent uh, Belt and Road Initiative uh, forum. So look back 10 years ago when the forum first started, a third of the national leaders there were in Beijing were from Europe. This year there were three. Uh, national leaders, heads of state from Europe. Those were from Russia, Hungary, and Serbia. So the, China has lost enormous ground, uh, and it's, it's becoming clear to the international community they can't offer, they can't follow through on what they're offering. And so they're trying to shore themselves up with these smaller uh, regimes with connections to uh, moreover terrorism and things like this. Recently, we had Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell calling China, Iran, and Russia the new axes of evil. And it seems the Biden administration is taking some steps here. They recently requested $7.4 billion to counter China and to build up their submarine fleet. How important is it for the U.S. to maintain its submarine fleet? Our submarines, uh, both nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed, are, are going to be absolutely vital. Um, the one spot where we really have enormous advantage at this point. Um, but we don't currently have the infrastructure or the maintenance crews and these kind of things to sustain a, a large submarine fleet simultaneously in the field. Um, so, so that's important. At the same time, I've heard in Congress plenty of complaints that in a $105, $105 billion supplemental, we get $7 billion for the Indo-Pacific, $3 billion of which is for our submarines. The other $4 billion will be spread across the Indo-Pacific. Uh, so this is really a a bit of a nothing burger from the Biden administration for the Indo-Pacific. It's, it's definitely all about Ukraine and Israel for the Biden administration right now. And I think there's a lot of fear that China could, could creep its influence uh, forward in the Indo-Pacific at this time. How does the U.S. go about countering this rising threat? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's one that gets harder every day to answer. This is largely the product of what we've seen to be an increasingly formalized system of arms and related technology trades between China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, in which we've seen these countries intentionally now starting to cooperate to insulate their economies from the United States and from retribution, and also to share arms. We, we see Russia sharing missile and jet fighter technology with Iran, with North Korea, and with China. Um, there's no doubt that China's nuclear program is, with or without Russia, uh, the greatest uh, threat in terms of proliferation we face right now. Andrew Thornbrook, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Tiff. Pleasure to be here. 
That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.